Hello everyone, my name is Dina and you're listening to Slavsvite, a podcast about Slavic languages. Today we're talking with Professor Stefan Michael Neverkla from the University of Vienna, who is a professor of West Slavic linguistics, especially Czech and Slovak. Professor Neverkla, thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for taking your time to be a guest in this episode. So my first question is, what was the main reason you decided to pursue a career in West Slavic branch of the Slavic languages? It's my pleasure. Well, I already had Russian at school and the grammar school I attended, the Gymnasium Zwettl, is the partner school of the Russian Embassy School in Vienna. And so originally I had wanted to study Russian and Japanese after my mature exams. Uh, but I knew that uh, at the Institute of Slavic Studies you have to learn another Slavic language in addition to your main language. And therefore I went on a Czech summer course at uh, Charles University. Uh, and this summer course was in Marianska Lazne uh, the summer right after I finished my mature exams. And there in Marienbad, or Marianske Lasne, I met my future wife. And she has a Czech father and a Slovak mother. And then my focus shifted <laughs> to the West Slavic languages. So it's because of love. I mean, that's really, really great. It's, it's, it's a love story, uh, more or less. And she said that, uh, interestingly enough, she studied Russian herself. So she said, uh, that's enough in the family. So I have to shift my focus to the West Slavic languages. And which language do you speak to her now? Uh, most of the time in Czech, actually, because she, she grew up in, in the Czech part of the, of the former Czechoslovakia. And so she uh, had Czech school and therefore she speaks Czech. So you kind of have something of each one, German, Czech. Yeah, mixed family, but we also had a babysitter in a Slovak babysitter for our children that they also understand Slovak. So they know the differences between Czech and Slovak and so on. So that we have three languages. Yeah. So you're actually raising your ch children trilingual. Well, they are raised bilingually because they don't really speak Slovak. And now... Yeah. But on the other hand, they, they use English a lot now because they watch TV in English and so on. Yeah. So let's start by talking about the language contact between German, Czech and Slovak. And actually, my question is going to be, how did Czech and Slovak influence German? In my last episode, I discussed with Professor Greenberg, how did German influence Czech and Slovak. And now I want to hear from your point of view, the vice versa. Okay, yeah. Um, first of all, one must distinguish uh, between small scale influences and influences in a, in a larger context. Uh, throughout the entire territory of today's Czech and Slovak republics, uh, there lived German speakers who were uh, naturally uh, exposed to the influence of Czech or Slovak in different ways. Uh, however, those were mostly uh, local phenomena on a dialectal level. Uh, we can also encounter such in northern Lower Austria, for example, in the vicinity of Gmünd, the Vitorasko. There is an area where raspberries um, are called Malini, Malini, as in Czech for Himbeeren. So these are local phenomena and, and really uh, small-scale influences. 
But there are also large-scale influences, on the other hand, that can be found in Austria, especially in the Vienna area and its surroundings, because here there were a large number of migrants from the Czech lands who also changed their language from Czech to German and thus influenced German in this area. And uh, we are investigating into this influence as part of our FVF-funded special research program, German in Austria, Variation, Contact and Perception. And uh, a case of German-Czech language contact is, for example, the verb give as a put verb uh, in the German of Eastern Austria instead of uh, stecken, legen, stellen or tun. Uh, in Vienna, you can give, put something on the table, gib das auf den Tisch, gib das hinter die Scheibe and so on. It's the give as a put verb. Or you have also case government in the equivalent for the cognitive verb of to forget in German, vergessen auf and not forget something. That's the main scale influence. That's a large scale influence on the German in Austria. And you don't find that in German in Germany. Some Viennese districts have names that were derived from Slavic words. Is, is, is that correct? Can we get a little bit into that? Because I heard that leasing is from Les. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, some Viennese district names. Yeah, yeah. Some Viennese district names are indeed of Slavic origin, uh, but these are still much older phenomena and are not related to the migration of the Czech uh, migrants. Nowadays, they are word compounds of a Bavarian suffix ing and a Slavic word root. For example, leasing, as you mentioned, with the root les for forest or forest stream, or döbling, döbling with the root toppel, teppel, teppel, teppli, for warm or hot. Or you can also mention wering with the root word var, variti, varshit, net. That's also in Czech. It's for boil, cook and boil, yes. Or Leinz, which is from Lunka, which is the meadow. So there are several of these names, yeah. But these are all the phenomena from the original Slavic people here. Uh, those are from... Former which... days, yeah. yeah Before okay. the Bavarian came to Vienna, yeah. What are some of the greatest myths about the language contact between those three languages? What do most people think is true, but it's actually not when it comes to Czech and Slovak contact? And then again, okay, German as well, but... Yeah, well, many myths circulate, for example, in the phon phonetic field. The best known is uh, probably the so-called Meidlinger L. Mm -hmm. uh, To this day, it is claimed that the velarized lateral was adopted by Viennese speakers as a result of extensive contact with Czech migrants. So this L. But this phenomenon can actually be described as a linguistically imminent development of Bavarian as well, namely when dialect speakers attempt to pronounce the vocalized L as a consonant. Yeah? Uh, and this is documented not only in Vienna, but in the entire Danube region. So you don't need the Czech immigrants to explain this myth. But Czech workers also learned German in a dialect-dialect contact uh, scenario. And they may have, of course, reinforced this process. Otherwise, however, only a middle L is now still present in most Czech dialects. So there is no differentiation between a, uh, two Ls in Czech. Therefore, this is one of the myths which is really prevalent to this day. 
Yeah, so I saw that you are also interested in the problem of standardization of Czech. And what what are what exactly are the problems with standardization of Czech? Well, I, I would not call it a problem, really. It is just part of the special development of the Czech language uh, throughout the history. Um, the modern standard Czech language uh, originates in standardization efforts of the 18th century. And Czech philologists then began to emphasize their people's accomplishments from the 15th through the 17th centuries. Uh, they studied uh, 16th century texts and advocated the return uh, of the language to this high culture, cultural style of Czech. And thus the norm of those days became the modern written standard and was codified in the context of the Czech national renaissance. However, uh, the, the main non-standard variety uh, spoken in the Czech Republic, uh, which is known as common Czech, is based on the vernacular of Prague and is now uh, spoken as an interdialect throughout most of the Czech Republic. And this is why there is this gap between standard Czech uh, and commonly spoken Czech in Bohemia. But moreover, you have also the Moravian dialects uh, spoken in the eastern part of the country and some of their eastern variants are uh, closer to Slovak than uh, to the Czech vernacular variant. But this is why there's this great gap between written standard and uh, spoken Czech of everyday life. Can you give us um, some examples, please, of the... I mean, I know that it's a first person, uh, first person ending is uh, E and E. I mean, E is in standard language and E is, or is it vice versa? Well, that's, that's, there are some words where it's already allowed also. For example, in polevka, polivka, mm -hmm. uh, this is soup. Uh, there you can also use polivka now in the standard uh, form. But for example, in mliko, mleko, you have only mleko in the standard uh, variety of Czech and mliko in uh, common Czech. So this mm -hmm. is, uh, for example, only on the phonetic level. But you have also uh, differences on all other levels, in morphology uh, and on the syntax level. This uh, mm -hmm. is uh, due to the form, the written standard form is really a, a form from, from, from the history from the 16th century. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, in the modern uh, common Czech, uh, it's... it's much easier to, to use unified forms in the plural form, for example, the ma. Uh, you have in the instrumentalis case, you can uh, use it with all nouns and not only in uh, the dual. It's an old dual form, actually. Okay. And what was the language situation back in the Habsburg monarchy? I, I saw that you wrote also something about that. I specifically mean the situation of Slavic languages. So what was what were the laws and what was the reality of, of that situation? Well, I'm, I'm, as far as my own research is concerned, I'm very much interested in the school system of the Habsburg monarchy uh, and uh, the language situation in this school system. Mm -hmm. Because uh, this is really a, a fascinating scenario. The most exciting phase started with the compromise of uh, 1867 between Austria and Hungary. And after that, we have to uh, differentiate between Cislaitania, which was the common yet unofficial denotation of the northern and western part of Austria-Hungary, 
officially called uh, the kingdoms and lands represented in the Imperial Council. And there were tolerance intended language regulations and uh, an equality oriented school policy in this area. So everyone had the right to education in her or his mother tongue. No one was allowed to be forced to learn another national language. And, and this eventually led to the expansion of nationality schools and, and also, unfortunately, to the segregation of ethnic groups and, and finally to language conflicts, which one had actually wanted to prevent. So this tolerance-oriented uh, language policy led to uh, language conflicts and segregation. But on the other hand, you had Translaitania, that is the Hungarian lands of the crown of St. Stephen, east of the Leiter River. And there was a centralized school policy with strong uh, modernization efforts. So all students should learn Hungarian. Education should be acquired in Hungarian and so on. And this policy of oppression also led to nationality conflicts. So no matter either how way. it was done, yeah, either way, it always ended badly. And probably a middle course with a balance between coercion and, and tolerance would have been more effective. But, but no one knows. Uh, however, historians and also politicians are interested in this situation in the Habsburg monarchy because somehow also the situation in the European Union is, is similar with the many yeah. languages here and so on and which languages to learn. So it's a fascinating scenario. Yeah, yeah you published a book with um, together with your colleagues called uh, Diachronie, Ethnos, Tradition, Studien zur Slavischen Sprachgeschichte in 2020. And you wrote an article about uh, das irische Geschlecht und seine Verbindung mm -hmm. zu Österreich und Russland. Could you tell us um, a little bit more about an article, about your contribution to, to this book? Yeah, this book was a festschrift for Anna Kretschmer. And um, the article is one of my contributions I wrote about the families whose members belong to the so-called wild geese. And wild geese, this is a term used in Irish history to refer to Irish soldiers who left to serve in continental European armies in the 16th, 17th and 18th century. Uh, originally, the flight of the wild geese was the departure of members of the Irish Jacobite army from, from Ireland, as agreed in the Treaty of Limerick, following the end of the Williamite War in Ireland between the Jacobite supporters of uh, the deposed Catholic monarch James II and Williamite supporters of his Protestant successor, William III. And these wild geese served then in the armies of Spain, Austria, Russia, and so on. And well-known families are, for example, the Brown Camus or the Camar, the Lacys, and so on, but also the Aurelis. And the Aurelis, this is a group of families, ultimately all of Irish Gaelic origin, who were historically the kings of East Breffne in what is today County Cavan. And the clan were part of Breffne kindred, uh, closely related to the Aurochs, also served. The Aurochs also served uh, in Russia, for example, then. And in my article, I write about the history of the family Aureli and especially the daughter of one of the Aureli officers serving in France. Mm -hmm. And she uh, was called Jenny Quinn Aureli. And this is really special because on his grand tour through Europe, Prince Andrei Ivanovich Zayemsky, the Russian prince who was then just over 30 years old, met her, fell in love with her and kidnapped her to Russia. <laughs> Although she was already married at that time. 
And as we all know, Prince Zajemski, again, was a close friend of, of Alexander Segevich Pushkin's. And so this Jenny oh. O'Reilly is the Irish connection to Pushkin. And moreover, she had relatives all over the world because of the wild geese. And actually, the whole article could serve as a script for a Netflix series because the interweavings are really <laughs> exciting. And it, it's really fascinating how the whole of Europe was connected then, and not only Europe, but also the colonies then in, in America and so on. It's, and the really family is really everywhere uh, uh, um, around the globe. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's a thing um, to look out for. I can send you the whole article. It's really an exciting story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be interested in that. Yeah. I'm also interested to know about the sense of identity in Slavic world throughout the history. Yeah, the question of identity. Well, yeah, this, this is actually one that is closely linked to the question of nationality uh, in the age of Romanticism. And through time, several movements then have emerged. On the one hand, there were, of course, the linguistically defined individual language identities that were connected to the respective nation-building processes and so on, mm -hmm. so that you can uh, have a Czech identity and a Slovak identity and so on. But sometimes they are mm -hmm. also additionally linked with national patriotic movements. For example, you can also have a Czech and a Moravian identity at the same time. You can have a, an Austrian identity and a Czech identity, if you are Viennese Czech, for example. And moreover, there have been more global movements at the same time. For example, Pan-Slavism, for example. This was a movement which crystallized in the mid-19th century. And this is the political ideology concerned with the advancement of integrity and unity for the Slavic peoples. On the other hand, you had Austro-Slavism, which was a political concept and program aimed to solve problems of Slavic peoples in the Austrian Empire. And but you have these tendencies until yeah, now, yeah. until uh, until today. Actually, the similarity of Slavic languages, for example, inspired many people to create Pan-Slavic languages. These are sonal constructed languages, conlangs, for all Slavic people to communicate with one another. And among the best known are Inter-Slavic, perhaps you know Inter-Slavic or Slovio, and so on. So this is really a, a wild and broad field, very complex and. Uh, Identity is always difficult, to, uh, very difficult to, to define. But when was the, I mean, when was the first time, let's say it like that, that the Czechs and Slovaks started to realize, to identify themselves as Czechs and Slovaks? Uh, this, is, this is really hard to tell because, of course, uh, as you know, the standardization process of, of Slovak is really um, uh, only from the 19th century, so that you have... Mm -hmm. Well, the first uh, uh, attempt you had already with uh, Bernolak uh, in the, at the end of the 18th century and then uh, Ludovic Dur in the 19th century. But we have already uh, linguists, uh, for example, Nudo Gerinos, uh, which was actually a Wawrinets Benedict Nedoger. Uh, now we would mm -hmm. call him a Slovak uh, linguist who served then in Prague and wrote the Czech grammar. And in this grammar, uh, he uh, described Czech. But he also wrote, wrote in the foreword that uh, you have to be careful and also think about the language varieties we speak in our uh, vicinity at home. Yeah? So therefore, he, he really already then realized the difference between uh, the Czech he was describing and the language he was speaking at home. 
So, uh, of course, you can find hints all the time, but there is no strict event in, in time that you can say now from this moment on we are Slovak. It's a nation-building process and therefore the identity is also uh, somehow uh, emerging uh, with time. What aspects of historical lexics are the most important for the research of language contact in Central Europe? Well, As you know, the lexicon is the part of the language that is most open to foreign language influences. Yeah. And from then one can therefore read very well historical developments and also the importance of the respective languages uh, and also of certain fields of knowledge. So from a historical point of view, certain domains are particularly important in earlier times. For example, the religious domain or the domain of crafts and mining, etc., Up to modern times, then the domain of civil servants or the IT sector mm -hmm. and so on. And as far as languages are concerned, different languages were important at some uh, points in time. So in Central Europe, for example, the importance of Latin and German and French in former times, then Italian, Spanish, Russian, and also most recently, of course, uh, English above all. Um, and as you can see also the uh, connections then, between the Czech people and the uh, Austrian-German, where, where you have also these uh, traces in the lexicon. These are the main differences between Austrian-German and the German spoken in Germany. And these were not only influences of the Czech people, but also influences of Slovak, Hungarian, and so, uh, and so on, also from Southern Slavic languages. And then you have, uh, for example, mm -hmm. words like Buchtel, Klobase, a chauffeur, a fish, and so on, which uh, set to a great extent the typical character of the Austrian variety of standard high German. So the lexicon is really somehow uh, a treasure uh, for, uh, for historians to find the connections between languages and domains of language of importance at some time. Okay, I would love to finish this talk with a question about language situation in today's Austria and your predictions for future with, of course, the, the emphasis on, on Slavic languages. Well, um, Austria has always been and still is a multilingual country. Uh, even if some people do not want to talk about that or do not want to realize that, but Uh, it has always been a multilingual country and also the Second Republic is a multilingual country. And some languages are, are losing importance, of course, and others are gaining importance. And this is a normal process. Uh, among them uh, are always taught languages of international communications uh, with prestige, for example, French. French used to be dominant here in schools. Now it's English. But as you know, Spanish is also becoming more popular. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, you have also spoken languages apart from German. And Czech and Slovak have lost importance over the years because, of course, it's not the situation of, of the end of the 19th century now in Vienna. But on the other hand, Serbian, Croatian, Polish, Turkish, and most recently Persian, Arabic, and Pashto have gained in importance. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a normal process. And, and the only thing that is clear at least as far uh, as I think is that however the situation will develop, it will remain full of surprises and, and will continue to be exciting. Mm 
Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Because it's um yeah, it's nice to have all of these languages around you even if you don't speak them. <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you for listening. This was Professor Stefan Michael Neverkla from the University of Vienna.